0: issue for all women.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Standard Issue scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I very much enjoyed Paul McGann introducing me to the tasseled wobby gong.
2: Nope.
1: (laughs) It's (laughs) a shark. Oh. And Paul McGann is doing some absolutely cracking narration on a show called Shark that's on Netflix and well worth the watch. And the tasseled wobby gong Looks like a carpet, and he's got tassly bits that look like coral, and that's how he catches his prey. I, I love might have him. to watch that, Mister Blue Wobby
3: Planet, when they had fish that had see-through heads and stuff. It was oh. amazing. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've missed you. Oh, missed you too, mate. Oh, was that to the listeners, not us? I was a bit of both, ah, to
1: be honest. That's nice Shucks.
2: I'm Jen Offord, and I am still badly bruised. I hear you.
1: I feel you, but not where it hurts. <laughs>
3: Later on, I speak to Stacey Fox from Planned Parenthood about the war on women's bodily autonomy in the US.
2: I talk to playwright Helen Edmondson about her adaptation of Andrea Levy's Small Island, currently showing at The National, and in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking tennis, among other things.
3: And we're off to Japan in this week's Dunleavy Does Dystopia with Battle Royale. But
1: first, President Dipshit, Molecules of Freedom, and oh no, Bojo, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where if you don't do what we want, we still won't shit on your floor.
3: If you've been feeling unsettled this week, or more so than normal, it may be that Donald Trump, the worst thing to come out of America since the bomb, is so close to you, you can probably smell his mouth shit. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, where to start, really? Really? As it's Monday and you won't hear this until Wednesday, I'm unable to report huge crowds gathering at a planned protest in London over this, his second visit to our fair shores. Although I can only hope that's what's happened in the interim. So let's instead look at some of the torrent of bullshit tumbling from his black hole. First up are tweets about London's Mayor Sadiq Khan, who has long sparked Trump's ire and was this week the subject of a tweet labelling him a stone-cold loser... Who, and I quote, reminds me very much of our very dumb and incompetent mayor of NYC, de Blasio, who has also done a terrible job, only half his height. Yeah, good one Donald. He's also been guffing out his thoughts on Brexit, which I'm not even going to dignify with airing, and upsetting royalists and anyone whose soul isn't made up of broken mirrors, dust and old condom wrappers, (laughs) by calling Meghan Markle, new mum and now duchess of somewhere or other, nasty, in an interview with The Sun. He later denounced it as fake news, tweeting, I've never called Meghan Markle nasty, made up by fake news media, and they got caught cold. Whatever you say about Tangerine McFuckstick, I almost admire his commitment to bringing cold back into common usage. Groovy. (laughs) And speaking of fake news, Facebook are still refusing to get rid of an edited video of the current chief thorn in his side, Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi. Said video had been edited to make Pelosi look variously incompetent, stuttering and drunk. When in fact, she was and I did actually watch this on telly, lacerating the president and self-described extremely stable genius. He retweeted it, obviously. Cold. Also, cunt. <laughs> oh, excuse me, just a bit of freedom
1: gas escaping yeah. there. Hey, if it's good enough for the US Energy Department, it's good enough for me. Except it's a much more acceptable way to describe a bit of windy pops than, say, oh, I don't know, fossil fuel. That's right, good old carbon emitting, global warming, rootin-tootin natural gas has now been rebranded as, quote, molecules of freedom. Wow. In a press release boasting about increased exports of liquefied natural gas and the expansion of a plant in Quintana, Texas, the U.S. Energy Department said increasing export capacity from the Freeport LNG, that's the liquefied natural gas, project is critical to spreading freedom gas throughout the world. Um, Okay. Tiny silver lining, 3,000 new jobs at the plant. Massive fuck off cloud. This jingoism comes as Trump attempts to walk back on commitments to tackling climate change made by the Obama administration. US Energy Secretary Rick Perry said, and by that I mean he actually said these words out loud and seemed to believe them. Rick Perry. 75 years after liberating Europe from Nazi Germany occupation, the United States is again delivering a form of freedom to the European continent. And rather than in the form of young American soldiers, it's in the form of liquefied natural gas. I mean, he sounds like he's been at some other kind of gas, and I'd quite like a go on
3: that. Rick Perry, former governor of Texas, is the human equivalent of a belt buckle that says, America, fuck yeah!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Over at Labour Party HQ, Big Jezzee and his band of incompetent bellends took an interesting approach to reaching out to their lost centrist voters. In what we can only assume was an attempt to frame a positive narrative around terrible losses in the European parliamentary elections last week, the party took unprecedentedly negative action by expelling members who had publicly stated they'd not voted for the party. And when we say members, we mean one, Alastair Campbell, Tony Blair's former communications chief, Labour centrist beacon and if we're honest a major factor in the Labour Party getting into and keeping power for 13 years. Campbell said after the MEP election that he had voted for the Lib Dems rather than his own party as according to a YouGov poll did 41% of the party's members. It's quite a lot isn't it? That is a big old percentage. Only to be expelled within 48 hours. Rules are rules, said the party, and those rules are in fact that you aren't allowed to publicly announce your intention to vote for a different party and then actively encourage others to follow suit before an election. On Friday, Campbell told BBC4's Today programme that he had lodged an appeal against the party's decision citing discrimination. Was Sherry Blair going to get kicked out, he asked, or Charles Clarke? Well, I'll tell you what, Alastair, and I realise I am not as influential as you, to what? be fair. What? I know, Mick, hard to believe. But I didn't get kicked out for tweeting on the day of polling that I wouldn't be voting for Labour. I did, however, cancel my
3: own membership shortly after the story about Campbell broke. This is interesting because it's not just the European elections that they were trying to distract from. It's the Human Rights Commission investigation into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which was also announced on the same day which they were looking to distract from, some may say.
1: (laughs) Who are those shadowy figures saying that, Hannah? Get them expelled (laughs) immediately. I mean, the whole European elections was some sort of crazy shit show. It's good that, obviously, Remain got the biggest percentage of voters saying this is what we want to do, but the fact that the Brexit party were the winners when it comes to actual seats... In the European Parliament. I mean, seriously, where the fuck is irony? Alarnis,
3: come back. What's your problem, Mickey? We've now got someone representing us in Europe who thinks that science can cure cancer.
1: I <laughs> oh, mean, what is point. your problem? I mean, at least Anne's there. Oh, God, the Willie of the PayPal. He's keeping his only <laughs> his
3: only seats. Horrific, isn't it? Still. Only a few more days of our second female prime minister to
1: go. Tubar, will we miss you? Is it going to get to the stage where we actually miss Theresa I might.
3: I, I found all the stuff about her crying really, really interesting, but not for the reason that I think other people did, but because I think it creates the stupid idea that people have that people who are crying are upset and people who aren't crying aren't upset. It's exactly that sort of thinking that means that prime ministers can cry. And look but not like about,
1: upset. but not about Grenfell or about austerity measures exactly. or about any other people whose lives they've destroyed.
2: Well, on a Tory tip, if you will. <laughs> oh God! Why isn't yeah. this a good news story, Jen? <laughs> uh, it was a bad week for Tory leadership hopeful Boris Johnson. Yay! <laughs> hey. Although, what is a bad week for Boris Johnson? It's really hard to know, isn't it?
1: He must be looking back at his glory days of being stranded on a zip wire, <laughs> <laughs> wishing he was there again.
2: Well, he was ordered to appear in court following accusations of misconduct in public office made against him. The private prosecution brought about by campaigner Marcus Ball after he raised £200,000 via a crowdfunder to pay for the case stems back to that infamous £350 quid bus slogan. You remember when BJ and his cronies lied about how much money the UK sends to Europe each week, money that they said we'd take back and plough into the NHS... Still, lying is literally the only thing we know this man is truly capable of. He does, after all, have a pretty impressive back catalogue on that score. Ball's legal representative, Lewis Power QC, said the allegation with which this prosecution is concerned, put simply, is Mr Johnson repeatedly misrepresented the amount that the UK sends to Europe each week. The UK has never sent, given or provided, £350 million a week to Europe. That statement is simply not ambiguous. Hilariously, the BBC cites a source close to Bojo as complaining that the decision to summon the former foreign secretary risks undermining democracy. Now, is that the democracy where you can lie in a campaign to swing a vote and face literally no repercussions, or the kind where you can be the second unelected prime minister of a party currently polling in third or fourth place?
1: In theory, you could say that Theresa May did win the election, she called, but then had to bring in the DUP. Yeah. So, I'm saying no. (laughs) If it's a question of mandate. Good news for the UK's female politicians, as it turns out they're not the only ones facing heinous threats to their lives. Oh, oh wait, that's not good news at all, is it? I totally forgot that saying you don't want to rape someone isn't a compliment to the ones you do. Anyway, over in the US, Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez receives so many death threats that it's become a morning ritual for her to have a cup of coffee and review the photos of the men and she points out it is always men who want to kill her. I don't even get to see all of them she added just the ones that have been flagged as particularly troubling. That's nice isn't it? What a great way to start your day. It must put a real spring in your step before you go out to fight for things like fair pay and reproductive rights and I suppose it's not even news as such because it happens all the time. But it does give me the chance to say to anyone who doesn't believe that male violence is a thing, you're a fucking spoon, get in a skip and stay there.
2: Right, guys, do you know what the definition of hypocrite is? Who knew? Turns out it's actually John Cleese. (laughs) The Monty Python star was criticised last week after he tweeted, Some years ago I opined that London was not really an English city anymore. Since then, virtually all of my friends from abroad have confirmed my observations, so there must be some truth in it. I know also that London was the UK city that voted most strongly to remain in the EU. And where does Cleese live? The Caribbean island of Nevis, from where he happily makes no financial contribution to his country of origin,
3: living as a tax exile. What a douche. Who's the happiest person in this room, do you reckon? Um, Well, good news, Jen. It's me and Lee, as single women without children are likely to be happier than their married peers (laughs) with children. (laughs) Is it, shall I just cry in the background? Yeah. I'm
1: still technically single. I'm having some of this. No, you're not. I'm technically single. single. If you're
3: engaged, you're not single. Oh, does it not count? You're betrothed. You're
1: betrothed. But I still have to tick the single box
3: until I get married. Ask the guy that you're engaged to whether he'd like you to still consider yourself single and see which response comes (laughs) back. And as you're
1: listening to this, I asked the guy I was engaged to.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Professor Paul Dolan told the Hay Festival recently, I am going to do a massive disservice to academic science and just say, if you're a man, you should probably be married. If you're a woman, don't bother. His statements drew a collective gasp from all over the shop, from academia to the Daily Telegraph, from married people taking it as a personal attack to ends on Twitter. People were just queuing up to give their two penneth on why single women, and I stress that's two-thirds of this room, couldn't possibly be happy. I don't know, maybe it's not having to listen <laughs> to their opinions all the livelong day. But who knows? What is happiness? Are we made as people to connect with other people? Does single life turn you into a certain sort of person? Funnily enough, I was talking about this to all my cats recently. (laughs) (laughs) Meow. More news
1: next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we take a sniff in our lady caverns and find them as dark, musky and delicious as nature intended. Now, I use the word delicious with a pinch of salt, which you'll also sometimes taste in a vagina, because vaginal secretions are as individual as the wondrous lady bunker from whence they came. And that is perfectly natural and absolutely lovely stuff. So why am I wanging on about this? Well, bear with me a tad longer. Social media influencers get a lot of stick, and a lot of the time, I think it's unfair because I have a lot of sympathy with what is, let's face it, mainly young women finding a voice and earning some cash. However, sometimes that stick is well-deserved, such as this week, when various influencers, most notably Girls Think I'm Funny, promoted a product called My Sweet V, which is billed as an amazing supplement that will safely alter the taste of your vagina secretions and make you tasty! Exclamation point. And to which Girls Think I'm Funny added is formulated to give your secretions a semi-fruity taste and a sensual smell you should always taste better than the next chick i don't
3: understand what sensual smells like (laughs) like a candle (laughs) no well but that would be a definition of it's It's sort
2: of ironic isn't it exactly
1: right Hmm. so point one fuck right off Mm -hmm. point two as covered earlier, vaginas taste of sexy sweat. Sometimes a little sweet, sometimes a little salty, sometimes a little tangy, sometimes a little tart, sometimes just a whole load of sexy wet. What they shouldn't taste of is fucking artificial sweeties. Mate, if that's a taste you're after, buy a pack of Starburst. Point three, this is just another brick in the wall. There are huge industries built around making women feel self-conscious about something, then selling them a product to cure the problem that's just been invented. It has ever been so. But they're targeting girls from a dangerously young age with this shit. From young women on social media being told they need to taste better than the next chick. And I mean, there is a whole load of unpacking about self-worth to be done for just those seven words. To femme fresh washes and scented tampons, which are bad for your body and do fuck all to negate the stigma girls and women already face about having periods anyway. Point four. Your lady garden smells lush just the way it is, Smashes. And if it doesn't, you should see a doctor, not take a supplement where the magic ingredient is cinnamon.
3: And lies.
1: Oh, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? Why don't you make it one of your best Saturdays ever by coming to our early evening show at the Underbelly Festival when we'll be chatting to Jane Horrocks, she of actually being Jane Horrocks fame, and excellent US comic Sarah Barron. Our live gigs are always cracking fun, and that's coming from someone who dislikes the word fun with a fiery passion. But, you know, sometimes you've just got to give in to the lols. Tickets and info for all our gigs are available at www.standardissuepodcast.com. But this one on Saturday, June the 8th. That one's for you, mate. See you there.
3: Hi, Hannah here. As you may have seen in recent weeks, there's been some bleak news coming out of the US regarding women's rights as pro-lifers in a number of states made their move against reproductive rights on monday i managed to grab some time with stacy fox president and ceo of planned parenthood southeast to talk about what this means for individual women as well as for roe v wade which protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose whether or not to have an abortion stacy's team covers alabama where a bill has recently passed regarding an outright ban on abortion georgia where abortions will be illegal after six weeks as of next year, and Mississippi, where, also last month, a federal judge temporarily blocked a state law that effectively banned abortions after the sixth week of pregnancy. And it's not just those three states where the right to choose is under threat. There are moves in Ohio, Missouri, Texas, Louisiana, to name just a few, which I discovered when I was in America in May. Sound like a war on women? Well, that's the first question I put to Stacey. I was in your part of the world, well, not specifically your part of the world, on your side of the Atlantic quite recently. (laughs) And every morning I got up in a hotel and turned on the news, I saw another state make an announcement. And I jokingly said to my mother, "Oh, this must have been what it was like during secession. Every day a new state Uh appeared to be doing something. And although I was kind of being glib when I said that, at the same point, it does kind of feel like a war on reproductive rights is happening. Is that is that what it feels like on the ground?
4: It absolutely feels that way, Hannah. And I think you're right. I think we have been fighting these battles for decades. They just get a new label every so often. And right now we are focused on abortion. But to your point, we've been fighting about the right to vote. We've been fighting about the right to own property. You know, we fought about women accessing birth control. This is an ongoing fight around autonomy and equity because we haven't, reconciled ourselves to the fact that women are full and equal humans.
3: Now, I've been talking to a few Americans, obviously, but I was up in very Democrat safe New England. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the conversations I was having about Trump, people said exactly the same thing to me is that they don't believe that he's intrinsically pro life. In fact, they think he might have got some stories of his own to tell. But that this is the states acting the way that they are because he's allowing it to happen because he's created this environment. Would you say that was true?
4: Well, I would absolutely agree with that, Hannah. I mean, I think regardless of how our president feels about the issue of choice, I mean, I think we know that our vice president holds his values very close to his core and how the president feels is nothing more than what he needs to rally his base and make sure he continues to grab the support of his party. And by doing that, giving cover to conservative politicians in states like ours to do the same. Sure, you've seen, Hannah, the statistics that health disparities that we face in the South, you know, if these politicians really cared about the people who lived in their districts and in their states, if they really cared about women, they would do something about those issues instead of literally playing politics with women's lives in order to better themselves for the next visit to the voting booth.
3: Yeah. When Kavanaugh, I want to say that was a year ago, but, you know, time started to slow down a bit, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, when Kavanaugh came in, we spoke to Hannah Leventova from Mother Jones about what that meant for Roe v. Wade. And she said to us mm-hmm. that she thought that there would be a slow chipping away at the sides of Roe v. Wade until the whole sort of structure collapsed. Now, that said, looking at Alabama, they've they've skipped that, haven't they? And they've sort of run straight for the, the prize. Could you just give us a pricey of what sort of the latest situation is for women in Alabama?
4: Right. Well, the Supreme Court actually has a case from Alabama literally sitting on its desk this session already. That speaks to the point that you brought up, Hannah, which is sort of this chipping away at, which is what we've seen for a few years now. Um, But, you know, Alabama uh, voted last year to amend its constitution to declare itself a state that's not going to provide access to abortion should get overturned, which I think, again, was just cover for what we saw play out in Alabama. Not sure how close you followed this story, Hannah, but in Alabama, it was so clearly a game of politics. And a let's be honest, also a war on poor people in the state, the war on uh, people of color, the, the war on victims, because yeah. in the Senate where the vote last stopped in Alabama, it was literally 25 white men that looked up into the gallery. So there's, you know, in the Alabama Senate, there's a gallery where visitors stand and there were three rape survivors who stood up to be recognized as that. And those 25 white men literally looked those women in the face and voted down an amendment for rape or incest on that bill. So, And this makes it so clear what their true intent is. And then you have a governor, a female governor, right, who signed the bill the very next day, claiming to be pro-life when she oversaw the state's seventh execution the following day. So these are political games, but the bottom line is people's lives are at risk. I mean, to what you were alluding to at the top, Hannah, we know that stopping abortion doesn't, or banning abortion doesn't stop abortion, right? It stops Safe abortion, yeah. which means women will die.
3: And in fact, if if we sort of move on to to Georgia, um, um, I look at that six week ban, and there's lots of problems with that that we can go into. But my gut reaction is, you know, deadline of six weeks, even for the women who might know that they are pregnant, gives them any opportunity to think that through. And to my mind, that would lead to more abortions.
4: Women need time, and we need to trust women, right? That's the bottom line. These are decisions that. Regardless of where, you know, how you feel about abortion, what we do know is that politicians are not doctors more often than not. They are not the experts. The experts are the doctors and their patients. And, you know, Hannah, as a woman, I mean, you're you're unlikely to even have missed your period at six weeks, to your point. Yeah. And I think whether Alabama or Georgia thinks they're going to be the state to take this case to the Supreme Court, is so ill-informed and it just points out how political this is because there's more than a dozen cases already in the pipeline and like i mentioned a a method ban case from the state of alabama literally sitting on the desk of the supreme court this session and they will decide whether or not to hear that case next session in the coming weeks so these are just you know here in georgia i mean following the elections last fall i mean this is a conservative governor who had to give cover to his base and show how conservative he was because he didn't win on anything else this session, you know, after blatantly stealing the election
3: last fall. Well, I learned something as, as a woman who's who's never been pregnant. I learned something that somebody said recently, of course, is and it never occurred to me that, you, that you're pre- the date for your pregnancy is backdated to the start of your last period. Just, That's right. A six-week ban means nothing, really, in that sense. Right.
4: Uh, right. Yeah. So if you think about it from a menstrual cycle standpoint, right, your period is maybe two weeks late you know, it's not six weeks from the day that you, you know, had sex, or you know, from the date you expected your period. So yeah, I mean, it's really no time at all.
3: Now, now there's some very emotive language, obviously, being used around this. But I I think even sometimes people who with the best will are trying to agree (laughs) with the pro-choice argument is people will still use the word baby very often, won't they? There will Mm -hmm. still be the word mothers. Mm -hmm. How do you think we combat that?
4: That's such a good point. And I think, You know, I I think you're right. I think it's emotive, and I think sometimes it's intentionally emotive. Right? The language that was used around this bill in Georgia, calling it the heartbeat bill. I mean, that's literally when you're talking about fetal development, is not has a a heart is not even formed yet, right? So you're you're getting cardiac activity from a fetal pole, right? I I mean, (laughs) there's just so much science behind that, right? But but I think the bottom line is that this emotive language is because of shame and stigma. Because we don't talk about women's bodies, we don't talk about menstruation, we don't talk about abortion, we don't talk about pap smear or menopause. And so there is all this shame and stigma about it. We don't give folks the proper terms to use. And so to your point, the well-meaning people uh, revert to the language that they're hearing, you know, in the culture. Um, And I think, you know, and we saw this play out in Georgia, the bill sponsor, who's a white male engineer, not a doctor, Stood on the floor of the house and said to his colleagues, "You know, I, colleagues, I do I do not want to have to give you a class on menstruation, as if he were the expert on <laughs> menstruation. So I think there's a there's a a core issue of shame and stigma that we've got to deal with, otherwise we're going to keep coming back to this space politically over and over again.
3: Now, I mean, we're not in a position to preach over here. Uh, women in Northern Ireland still unable to right. terminate a pregnancy within there are certain conditions uh, and circumstances under which they can but basically they can't but that said there is a lot of momentum to get that changed here at the moment and that built on the momentum of repealing the eighth amendment in Ireland and also uh, the Isle of Man has looked at changing their laws so I do feel like in a lot of ways over here we feel like we're moving forwards and uh, looking at you 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 look like you're moving backwards. I mean is is Roe v Wade is that really at risk now?
4: It's absolutely at risk. I mean it, I think if you're seeing what's happening in Missouri this week, you know, we see elected officials coming at abortion access through the legislative means, but in Missouri, you're looking at an overreach of power where a governor is using the health department to go after abortion pro- providers through a regulatory environment. Yeah. So it, it is definitely our alarm bells are ringing. And I think, you know, sometimes it takes a while for people to understand the deep of elections. And I loved seeing the pictures, um, you know, during the repeal fight of, of women saying, you know, that they were coming back just to vote. Right. And I think yeah. that's what we're seeing here in the U.S. as well. Hundreds of thousands of women are up off the couch and they're marching and they're protesting and they are angry. I mean, I was in a tiny little rural town in Georgia this weekend for a rally at an old courthouse where they have never had a progressive rally before. And there was 150 people out in pink shirts talking about this particular bill, talking about being pro-choice and talking about the fact that we were going to work to unseat these politicians who passed this bill. So I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count out the South. I wouldn't count out women at this point. And last time I heard 99% was bigger than the 1% of population, you know, in this country, in this, us us 99% can take back our power.
3: (laughs) Quite. And to be clear, some other states in in New England, you know, the West Coast are looking at reinforcing women's rights based on what's happening in the South.
4: Isn't that great? Isn't it? just? I mean, you've got some haven places and you've got places that are still fighting and we're seeing the same in the US. And I think that's so great for states who have that. Power and ability right now that they're codifying it, right? Yeah. They're doing exactly the opposite to make sure that women can come get access to health care. And, you know, I hope that the time doesn't come, Hannah, where we have to figure out how to move women across states. Um, but yeah. I love that there are states thinking proactively about it just in case.
3: So, what can we do to help over here?
4: You know, raising awareness like you're doing with this podcast uh, is fantastic. And I'm so grateful for that. But I also think we all as a, you know, a global community who care about women have a responsibility to address shame and stigma. So I think regardless of, you know, it's on a podcast or talking to a girlfriend or a sister or a partner or a daughter, we need to share our stories. You know, I have to be able to say to you, Hannah, you know, I, yes, I'm the CEO at Planned Parenthood, but I also had an abortion my freshman year in college. And I'm unapologetic about that. I am so glad I had that option. And more people need to do that, so we, yeah. we take the control over our bodies and this narrative about our bodies back.
3: Yeah, agreed. Have you got places that people can send money?
4: Absolutely. I mean, if people want to send support, whether you know nationally to Planned Parenthood or you know organizations like the ACLU or, or Planned Parenthood Southeast here on the ground, whether the political fight or the healthcare fight, I mean, we appreciate every dollar that comes in. It's needed more than ever. And I think the other thing, Hannah, is, you know, I wake up every day making sure that we find a way to tell our patients that our doors are still open yeah. and that abortion is still safe and legal and available to them because those patients who aren't calling us right now are on my heart and I'm so worried about them and I'm so worried that they think these headlines mean that abortion is illegal and there are horrible. We all watch Call the Midwife, right? Yeah. We all know what what could happen and I don't want anybody, anybody in um, the states I work in or any uh, anybody across this country thinking that they have to go through that alone. We're here for them. Uh, ab- abortion is available and our doors are open.
3: Thank you so much for your time, Stacey. Hopefully our paths will cross again at some point and in, in when I'm ringing yeah. you to say, tell me about how you've won. <laughs> <laughs> so, as Stacey said, if you want to support women in the southern states, you can donate some cash to Planned Parenthood. Visit plannedparenthood.org to find out more. And... As I pointed out, we're not exactly ones to talk at the moment. Women in Northern Ireland still cannot access free, safe, legal abortions. If you want to help them, you can write to your MP, you can buy some merchandise from the brilliant birds over at Alliance for Choice, or you can just throw them some of your good old-fashioned folding money by visiting their site, allianceforchoice.com. That's the number four, by the way. And finally... You can also help women in Northern Ireland as well as those in the Isle of Man, Gibraltar, and Malta by sending some cash over to the abortion support network at asn.org.uk. Thanks for listening.
2: I am joined by playwright and screenwriter Helen Edmondson, who has just adapted Small Island by Andrea Levy for. The National Theatre. Hi, Helen. Hi. Small Island will be sort of relatively well known by probably quite a lot of our listeners. But for those who are not necessarily familiar with it, could you just tell us a little bit about what it's about and
0: what drew you to it? So, Small Island is a novel by Andrea Levy and it tells the story primarily of Hortense, Gilbert, Queenie, and Bernard. And Queenie and Bernard, they live in London. Queenie's moved down from the north and she end up, ends up becoming a landlady. Bernard ends up going off to war. So it follows their stories but very much also focuses on Hortense and Gilbert who come to England from the West Indies. What it's really about, I suppose, aside from these interconnected stories, is about People's dreams, you know, it's, it's about why people would want to move from one place to another. It's about what they want their lives to be and then the reality of what they confront. It's about being sold dreams. It's about the way that we're surrounded and fed dreams and aspirations. And then, yeah, the difficulties that we encounter in, in trying to make those dreams reality. And it particularly looks at... The relationship between Britain and Jamaica, the sort of colonial past of the two countries, and the way that, in a way, the, you know, the dream of coming to to England was sold by Britain to the West Indians, and what the yeah what what those people actually encountered, what the reality was when they arrived here. It was a favourite book of mine. I read it, you know, not long after it came out, and I just thought it was wonderfully human and funny and important. I'm always drawn to to work which combines the personal and the political. You know, I, I need to know why I'm telling a story. I need to know that it has a point and that. It's going to resonate with people and feel relevant. Um, and Andrea's book, you know, does all those things. It You know, for my mind, is one of the most important books which have been written in recent years. And I was just incredibly pleased and excited when I was asked if I would adapt it. Particularly, I think, because it's in the Olivier, which is where, where a story like that should be. It's in the National Theatre, it's putting... A story like that that's so important and probably you know a story that should have been told a long time ago but wasn't and it's putting it kind of where it should be. As you've said
2: the story is about immigration, it's about more than that but the, the plot involves obviously immigration and in particular it's Jamaican immigrants who came to England on the wind rush and this is a bit of a hot topic at the moment obviously politically speaking. Do you think it's particularly important to tell this story now?
0: I do think it's extremely relevant now and extremely important. I mean, it it sort of always was. When all of us as a team started uh, dreaming up this project and, you know, wanting to to tell this story, events around the, the Windrush and the uncovering of the... You know so called scandal, which of course it it is, but it, it's, in a way it 's kind of more than that about the the way that a lot of those particularly second generation West Indians have been treated that hadn 't broken you know I first met Andrea and started talking about this about getting on for four years ago. So even then it felt important. The fact that, you know, these things have unfolded as we've been working on it just makes it all the more relevant.
2: There has been another adaptation of this book with Ruth Wilson and Benedict Cumberbatch and various other people. Did you feel any pressure to make this adaptation of it your own or did that sort of come quite naturally given that it's for a different medium?
0: They are very, very different mediums and it didn't worry me at all I watched the adaptation when it was on television and I loved it I thought that they'd done it beautifully And it really stayed with me. Yeah, no, I approached it in a similar way to how I've approached other adaptations, which I've done. I guess the great thing on this occasion was that I actually had Andrea to talk to with ones which I've done in the past, say War and Peace or Anna Karenina or Mill on the Floss. I've had, you know, I've done a huge amount of research and I've always tried to really get to understand and get to the heart of what it is that the writer was trying to grapple with you know what it was that had made them tick what where they were in their lives when they wrote it what was preoccupying them and the great thing with this was that uh, that I actually you know I didn't have to turn to books or or research I actually had Andrea there and I, I spent a lot of time with her uh, before I started writing just going through the book you know just sitting together going through the book page by page So that she could just say to me, you know, the reason I put that in is because the reason I wanted that is because the reason I think this character does this is because it made that whole process really hugely enjoyable. But also by the time I'd finished that process, I felt that I was on quite solid ground. So one of my questions
2: was going to be how involved was Andrea in the process if at all because obviously she sadly died earlier this year did that feel like a real privilege to work with her in that way
0: yeah it was such a privilege to work with Andrea and to get to know her you know I ended up feeling quite close to her it was particularly important as well I think because I'm not black and so my perspective on the world, I don't have some of the insights that she has, etc. She felt it was important and I certainly felt it was important that we did spend that time together so that she could really help me to see the novel from her perspective. I don't think I could have done it otherwise. Once we'd had those conversations, she was great in that she just trusted me to to go ahead and, and do what I felt was right she She really wanted it to be funny you know there 's a wonderful balance in the book of the of the politics and the the very human sort of profound stories there 's kind of sadness in it, but also humor and She has a actually remarkably kind of populist type humor you know it isn 't highbrow it 's very accessible I think she she trusted me to to make sure that 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 was there as well. She loved the theater. Actually, but what she really loved was when a show really reached out to people and didn't feel as though it was somehow sort of a little bit too intelligent to be understood or she, she wanted it to be a show that everybody could come in and enjoy and relate to.
2: The book is really funny and the show is really funny and it's very moving as well. And it's very, uh, yeah, it's very accessible. I think it's very relatable too, as well. Obviously, um, as you say, like neither of us are, are black or have had that experience. But I think it's very relatable in terms of the feeling of being an outsider. So it's also very visual, the production. One of the bits particularly that I loved was the boat when the um, sail goes up and the Windrush is projected onto it. Did it look the way you imagined it would look when you saw it for the first time actually being staged?
0: It did look the way I imagined it, but better. So much of our understanding of that period of time, just around the time of the war and just after the war, so much of it is from path A type newsreels and that kind of footage so right from the start I knew that I wanted that to help me with the storytelling. I think what Rufus Norris has done is very clever in that he he didn't just think okay now we can have some Pathé footage or let's let's use this image from a newsreel but he's actually found a way of making it feel much more organic that sort of bringing history to life and stepping out of history, all those things. I think, you know, he took that idea and really ran with it.
2: The two main characters, because I think the women are the main characters in it really, aren't they? They're both really interesting, complex roles, really feisty, determined women. Hortense is not that sympathetic. Why do you think she's written in that way?
0: I know that for Andrea, it was really important that she felt that she could write all sorts of different black characters she she didn't want all her characters to be any more than any other characters she didn't want them to have to be kind of beacons of virtue she she wanted us to meet them warts and all you know uh, which is always the most interesting i think for us to to get to know characters who are flawed i think she just felt that there were too many extremely virtuous, careful portrayals of West Indian characters around. You know, the the thing about Hortense is everything she does, we know why she does it. Mm -hmm. You know, even though she doesn't always behave well and she isn't necessarily sympathetic, I think we always know where she's coming from, you know, what made her like that. And if we can understand that then we i think we do sympathize with her i think we go on quite a journey with her but i hope that by the end of the show just like by the end of the book we do want things to be good for hortense we want her relationship with gilbert to work we want her to have some love in her world you know because she's been so deprived of it really and she's actually you know i think i remember talking to andrea and we talking a lot about how for someone like hortense There's so many layers to why she ends up being a woman who doesn't really know how to love. You know, she doesn't really understand any more what it is to love. And she has to learn that through Gilbert. And that's partly why I felt it was so important that we actually see some of her childhood in the show. Talking with Andrea, talking about the fact that a lot of families in the West Indies were at that time and kind of remain fractured because of the colonial influence you know because of the fact that slavery brought a system which did not want to nurture families and whenever it could it broke them up and that sort of legacy of that the way the slaves were treated and that kind of culture around family and that you do what you need to do to survive and that you don't families don't necessarily stick together what do you think
2: the legacy of Andrea's writing is
0: i think andrea didn't write that many books in fact. She started quite late and each one really cost her. You know, she Often there was an autobiographical element in there, even if it wasn't particularly about her, it was about somebody within her family. She thought very, very hard before she put pen to paper. She did a lot of research, a lot of thinking. So anything that we now read by her is of a Enormously high quality. I think she seemed to, as one of the first black working class writers that this country has produced, um, writing such quality and also absolutely putting her finger on something that was kind of all around us but which hadn't necessarily been named. You know, she was the one who drew it all together, she was the one who noticed it all because, you know, she was living it. But she was the one who found a way to immortalise it, you know, and and to put it within a, a context and a political framework, whilst giving us these wonderful characters who we can never forget. That is the gift that she's left for all of us. You know, it's for it's for everybody. It's for black people and white people. It is so important. You know that I know that her books, Small Island, is on the national curriculum, and but I think her more of her books should be, you know, I think it should be compulsory reading because because it explains to us who, who we are, how did we come to be who we are now as British people living in this time, everything that that entails, it, it's all there in Andrea's work.
2: Presumably we can find out more about how to get tickets by visiting the National Theatre's website. You might not be lucky enough to get tickets, but I think you're doing an NT Live being screened
0: across cinemas around the country on June the 27th. Yeah, June the 27th, the show is being filmed and broadcast, and so hopefully that will bring it, you know, give, give people in different parts of the country a chance to see it
2: i thoroughly thoroughly recommend it i thought it was excellent i really 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 loved it helen thank you so so much for joining us thank you very much it's great to talk to you
1: hello mickey here interrupting again
2: but to tell you how you can
1: find out more about us and that is if you want to follow us on twitter standard issue is at standard issue uk i'm at mixed and noonan Hannah is at That Dunleavy and Jen is our Inspire Jen and you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having an atta.
4: You play ball like a girl!
2: Go on, do one kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we surpass everyone's expectations and have a lovely time for ourselves on a clay surface as we discuss all things women's sport. These are actually getting uh, quite hard to maintain. Of course, I'm talking about Joe Conter, who I'm struggling to keep up with, if I'm honest. So we are in the last week of the French Open, no one likes it, it's on clay, everyone watching gets well drunk, which offends all of our all England lawn tennis sensibilities and all that. It's been unpredictable as ever, Naomi Osaka got knocked out in the third round, as did Serena Williams, Angelique Kerber went in the first round, so did Svitolina, anyway Conte has battled her way to the quarterfinal and she is up against Sloane Stephens, one time US Open winner and last year's French Open runner-up. Could she amount to anything more? Who knows? But she did oust Garbinier Muguruza in the fourth round, who you generally tip to be all right on clay. Regardless, I am recording this on Tuesday morning. It will be out of date by the time we've even uploaded this tonight. So I'm not going to get super involved in predictions and whatnot. Just really to say, it's great to see Quanta back on decent form after a period of, what, two years? Two years in the wilderness almost? Anyway, she's playing really well. And should she succeed, she'll be the first British woman to play in a semi-final at Roland Garros, that's the posh name for the French Open, since 1983. So Conta has always sort of struggled a bit with getting her head round the game from an emotional perspective really, but apparently she has been really helped by success in the Fed Cup, which sort of helped her regain her confidence. Also, for the quarterfinals, Madison Keys. Sorry, I always want to sing it like the, um, you know, the song. A painting called Madison... Nope, just me. Okay, well, um, it has been a while since I dropped a gratuitous crime reference. Anyway, I digress. Madison Keys. She will play Ashley Barty. Simona Halep plays Amanda Anismova. Moretta Vondrusova plays Petra Martic. The only real sort of giant name in there is Halep, to be honest. But you never know what's going to happen in the women's game. Much like Noel Edmonds, they are always up to something. Right, netball. You might have heard that England women's netball coach, Tracy Neville, who I think is a top, top bird and has been really, really great for the team, she has sadly announced that she's going to step down from her role after the Netball World Cup, which starts on July the 12th it's sad news for us it's not for her because she's decided that she wants to start a family but the good news is she might well be back at some point she's done really phenomenal things for the team she's shown enormous strength of character during really quite awful personal circumstances you might remember her dad's Neville Neville actually died of a heart attack while supporting her in the last World Cup in Sydney back in 2015 and she stayed on with her team and went on to finish in third place in the tournament which is really quite remarkable. She is much loved in the netball and wider sporting community and England netball chief exec Joanna Adams said of the decision to leave that the organisation owes Neville too much not to keep the door open for a potential return somewhere down the line. And We will have more on that Netball World Cup in a few weeks' time. Finally, from one Neville to another... One World Cup to another. Adopt the brace position, guys, because the Women's World Cup, football that is, starts on Friday. And I am excited AF. That's as fuck to the uninitiated. Of course, after all this chat about how England are possibly going to win, we've had two pretty tepid slash actively bad performances in our international friendlies against Denmark and New Zealand in the run-up to the tournament. But, you know, this is football. Anything can happen. But for once, England aren't the only home nation presented in a World Cup. Welcome, Scotland, who England will play in their first match of the tournament on Sunday. And it is actually Scotland's first ever Women's World Cup as well. So congrats. Kick-off is at 5pm and you can watch it along with every other World Cup match via the BBC. They're not all on the actual telly, but red buttons online, etc. It's all there for you please do support the tournament. We are actually holding a World Cup viewing party this Sunday in Deptford, south-east London, at fashionable drinking spot Buster Mantis. We'll be watching Brazil v Jamaica, which kicks off at 2.30, followed by England v Scotland at 5. Myself, sports journo and guilty feminist tweeter Kelly Wells will be joined by all sorts of top birds for a panel betwixt the matches and then after the England match, Sarah Pascoe and Jess Vostekie will be coming along to help out with some alternative post much analysis, so come and hang out with us. It's free. Seriously, I'm giving you Sarah Pasco for free. We've been tweeting details, but the bar opens at 2 pm and you can find out more about where it is, etc., by visiting their website bustamantis.com. It's going to be a really fun day, so please do come along, come with some friends, come on your own. It's just going to be a room full of lovely people enjoying the football without explaining the offside rule to you or patting you on the bum. So whether you know football or not, it's just a really friendly, lovely environment if you want to just come along and, and support, just, you know, support women's equality, I guess. If you want to know more about that or you'd like to chart the progress of my bruised bum, that's a whole different story. I am on Twitter at InspireGent. Please do come to me and uh, look at pictures of my bruised bum. You're welcome. Coming up on this week's Sunday Chops... Mick and I had the delight of chatting to food writer and author Jack Monroe about her new book, Tin Can Cook, which is a kind of like cookbook to have in your sort of Brexit bunker almost. We chat about how the book came about and why Jack is unlikely to be celebrating the opening of new food banks. Keep your ears peeled for that on Sunday, and in the meantime, why not just subscribe if you haven't already to make sure you never miss a thing.
1: Welcome to Dunleavy Does
3: Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did you watch this week? This week we watched Battle Royale, Japanese film from the year 2000. Caused a lot of fuss at the time when it came out because it was considered to be incredibly violent. Not released in a number of countries because it was too violent. It was an 18 here. Interestingly, it was only a 15 in Japan. That is interesting.
1: Yeah. Because when you said... It was considered to be incredibly violent.
3: It is incredibly violent. Yakuza violence. Quentin Tarantino violence is what this is. So, shit violence. So when are we? We are in the not-too-distant future. Sometime after the year 2000, in Japan, there's been an economic collapse. 15% of the population are unemployed, and after some strikes at schools, the older generation has become very much scared of the younger generation and has passed something called the BR Act, the Battle Royale Act, in which children are basically put on an island and have to fight to the death. That sounds familiar? It will, because that's an idea that was later used in The Hunger Games. Suzanne Collins says that she had never seen or heard of Battle Royale or read it, because it started as a book before she wrote The Hunger Games. We have to take that to be true, because it's what she said, and that's perfectly possible. Because, of course, it also calls back to The Running Man, which is about a fight to the death on television, which The Hunger Games is, which Battle Royale isn't, but we can get to that later. And also, obviously, the Romans. I was about to say, it harks back to the Romans.
1: I wonder if Suzanne Collins has ever heard of them, eh? Exactly.
3: <laughs> Who managed to watch it?
1: I did watch it, and I have so many questions that I I, I kind of
2: don't care if I never know the answers to. Okay, Jen. Uh, I did not get that far into it. It was uh, I'm very
3: squeamish. It wasn't for me, guys. Um, it is epically violent. Yeah, it, it really is. Also, incredibly highly thought of, mm. um, is on a number of lists for being one of the best films of the century. Really? Yes. It's a cult classic. It's an it absolute cult classic. Very highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, all of those places that people seem to care about what people think. Because the director, Kinji Fukasaku, was a veteran. He made mafia films for yeah. G- The Japanese audience, right? So it was sort of his comeback. Okay, so basically, what happens is a class of pupils. I'm not going to give them names, particularly because, rather confusingly, these children are known variously by their name, their surname, and their nickname throughout this, making it really difficult to follow. Plus, there's 36 of them. A class of children find themselves on an island. There's two editions, one of whom is called Kawada. Um, That's about the only name I managed to grasp hold of during it. And it's largely because I thought he reminds me of Joe Bluth at the start. He's like everything Joe Bluth wants to be, plus a really 80s looking goth who is a psychopath. God, imagine if he'd been on a (laughs) Segway. Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, should we start with technology? No, let's start with technology. Actually, this is another example of a film made in 2000. The technology looks older than 2000 rather the than more whole film
1: looks older than 2000. It looks incredibly dated. The colours, and I don't know if that's the Japanese style thing, but it looked to me like it could be from the
3: 1970s. The board that they are tracked on <laughs> is like battleships. It it's is. like that advanced. And I think it's not just that there was supposed to be the future. This is Japan. Japan, throughout the 20th century, was an absolute pioneer of technology. It's the future. Yeah, and totally, you shouldn't be watching something expecting Matthew Broderick to, pop, to no. sort of pop up. The only difference appears to be it's a bit faster. They put a video in and it plays straight away. They take a Polaroid and it prints straight away. But other than that, there's no new technology in this. I suppose the
1: colours, Yeah. So they were colours. <laughs> that means that they can be tracked and recorded at any time and they can have their heads blown off.
3: But the mics are still big enough to be visible yes, in the collars. So, certainly. I mean, it hasn't really... And also,
1: all you have to do is put your hand over it.
3: Yeah. Although, I have to say, the video is is, is worth its weight in gold, the video they're shown at the start. Oh, it's because amazing. Because it is presented in that Japanese game show style. It actually makes it feel like this is kind of plausible. This isn't the craziest mm. idea. Perky and weird. Yeah. <laughs> Should we should we talk about women? Let's talk about women. This must be the only film I've ever, ever seen acknowledge that girls need extra stuff with them than boys need. Girls are allowed to take their own kit with them. The boys are not. And actually, weirdly, later in a, an instant of perhaps the worst possible time to have your period is while you're playing this game. Well,
1: that is exactly what would happen to me. Like, I'd be like, I've got a fucking fight for survival, kill my mates, and I'm on. This is rubbish.
3: Yeah, and it actually becomes a weird plot point yeah. that someone's on their period. There's a difference between the way the film treats women, but the way this society treats women, I think, is actually slightly further in advance just for the fact that it acknowledges that girls sometimes need to change tampons, which a lot of society doesn't bother with
1: one of the best killers one of the w- most successful gamers i suppose yeah. is a woman and you get to, a girl and you get to see what has fueled this yeah. anger in a, a very strange
3: flashback oh yeah i mean flashback. yeah but also you get to see a She's like call mitsuku i think mitsuku stabbing a rapist in the balls which which is, i suppose is if you're funny. gonna see someone be stabbed in the balls why it might not? as
1: well be a rapist why not yeah that's or, not her who does that but that's someone else who does that. The runner. Does oh that. yes, yeah,
3: yes, it is. So you well, get that, that is a bonus. Seven. That is a bonus. Yeah. That said, the film sets up this. You know, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where Michael Palin wakes up and he's in that dreamy place. Oh yeah. And there's a, there's a scene in this in which the lead character wakes up and he, he looks like one of Kajagoogoo when he wakes up because they put a bandage on his head and his 80s hair is, is sticking out. <laughs> wakes up and he's it's almost exactly the same, but this isn't being played for laughs. This is being played for Ernest. That he's waking up in this lighthouse where all these women are going to nurse him. And it's so ridiculous. And I, I cannot believe this film actually thinks that when these girls have potentially a maximum of 36 hours left to live, they would actually be doing housework, with some of them are. They're making a home, Hannah. They're nesting. Yeah. They're nesting. The teenagers in this, they're quite asinine, considering the point is that people are supposed to be scared of them. I actually find them to be like 50s American high school.
1: Oh, my God, that was the, the big contrast for me. It's like, as we said before, it's epically violent, but at the same time, sickeningly soppy. Yeah, There's crushes
3: all over the place. And they use that... the word crush, which might be something to do with the way it's translated, to be fair. There, there some... I don't think 15-year-old boys, particularly 15-year-old boys that are... I don't even know if they're supposed to be 15, but thats I'd, I'd have a stab. Yeah, I'd say, uh-huh. I think
1: they're 16, they're leaving. So I think year nine, they're leaving. But
3: that they actually like are terrifying enough to be actually... People want them to be killed off, but equally at the same point, be going, who have you got a crush on this week? They all appear to be virgins for a start. Mind you, if that's supposed to be what people in Japan are like currently, if that's what that film was predicting, it's worth noting that sex in Japan has become this thing that people have gone off in the same way that young people in this country have allegedly gone off drinking. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they are all sitting around being romantic and not actually banging.
1: There's also the argument that the... Because I found the sickeningly soppy declarations of love, I've been in love with you and I would die for you kind of thing, like, really jarred with me with the the gore that was spurting out of people left, right and centre. But there is the argument that... They're taking that teenage angst. And even though we look back on it and go, well, of course, they're not going to be who you stay with forever. or It was just a crush, that yeah. word crush. At the time, it feels like it's ripping you in two. And sometimes they're literally being ripped in two. <laughs> yeah. So I wondered if it was sort of a
3: literal version well, of that. See, that's an interesting point. because Thanks, the up, the, I mean, if you look at young people now coming out of higher education, you know, it is a fucking battlefield. Like mm. a friend of mine went for a job the other day where she was one of 400 applicants and you know, that's a really supremely qualified job. Did and she have to kill the others off? Well, that's kind of, maybe yeah. it is, it serves as an uh, analogy for that in as much as, you know, it is, it's brutal out there.
1: Indeed. Some of them might end up with an accidental axe in the head. So what about the mob? Because we've talked about Hunger Games comparisons like gladiators in Roman times and I'd chucking series seven the contenders there yeah. is, is, and the running man excellent. but
3: it's not shown on TV well but- see this is interesting that you don't really know much about the society in which it's set and there are some questions like there's a point at which at the end somebody goes back and visits their parents and I'm like
0: are parents cool with their kids just being killed Were
3: you they- say all your parents have been notified
1: is one of the lines yeah
3: Okay. okay, why aren't they
1: banging on the island door? I know that doesn't work, exact- but
3: I'd like to go, please don't kill my child. Exactly. And also, it seems to be on telly when they first show it, because they show a girl who's one coming out. And they show it being reported. But at the same point, none of the kids in it seem to be aware it's happening. I know children don't engage in news, but Jesus, you do. When, <laughs> tell you the news that children engage in, it's when there's things like school shootings. Yeah. So this would really resonate. would really yeah, resonate yeah, totally. with them. So that doesn't make any sense. Also, the, what, the episode they're in doesn't appear to be on television or there'd be a media interest in it. I say episode, you know, whatever it is. So the truth is, I don't know what the mob's doing because it literally doesn't show it. It's very odd. In that snippet where they're clamouring for an
1: interview with the girl in in a tank. I think she's in a big jeep or a tank and she's smiling. Does she have a teddy bear or something? Yeah, it's very odd. odd. But they're clamouring to interview. So there is obviously this like media circus around it. But that is like a two second clip that you see and it's never referred to again. Does it have
3: a Cassandra moment? I think it does. Weirdly, having said all of that, I think if we look at the world that we're in now, you and I... Possibly, Jen, I don't think. I think technically you're a millennial, Jen, and this isn't a criticism. But you and I are Generation X, and we sit in the middle of one of the most massive intergenerational rows that has ever happened, which is between the baby boomers and millennials. And when you watch people on Question Time talking about we made it through two world wars, we're going to survive this, and basically taking a shit, not even on their children, but on their grandchildren, which is what's happening. I do think that we're already at a stage where the older generation is actively inflicting pain on the younger generation for no good reason. So if it has a Cassandra moment, then yes, we're already there, albeit we're not making them fight on a game show. We're going to make them fight for jobs. And food, <laughs> food bags, yeah. and insulin, and shit like yeah. that. And to any teenagers who might be listening, it is—it's
1: definitely still frowned upon to stab a teacher. Mm. Yeah. But whereas in that in that world, it is not. It no. just seems to just be a thing that happens. Okay, what's it getting on the Arnie
3: scale? So we're going to start with Governor, Governor of California. Of California, is it a good? Is Is it it a good good film? film? You know, I think people are going to send me messages and say, I thought more of you. I thought you understood cinema. But I'm actually going to say I think The Hunger Games is a better film than Battle Royale. Um, My first note on Battle Royale just says, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah. I I laughed
1: a lot. If you like Japanese cinema,
3: maybe, but I don't think it's particularly good film. I find some of the acting to be really grating. Just histrionics all the time. I think it definitely lacks something in translation. It seems like Japanese people speak unbelievably literally or it had bad (laughs) translation because people are just like, no, put it down. And you're like, really? I don't think people would would necessarily speak the way they do in this. So I would say probably, given that it did something the cinema is supposed to do and that it caused a conversation at the time when it happened, I'm going to say two. Two, two on out of five. And what about? Yeah, get to the chopper. Well, like I say, technology shit. I suppose like those collars are sort of
1: the equivalent of that
3: one that my cat wears to get in and out of his cat yeah, flap. A bit like that. But I will say, I do think on the point of of looking into generational strife, it, it's it's a good idea. It's just quite poorly executed. executed. Yes, a bit
1: like all of the people in the film. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like
3: almost everything we've done so far. So yes. What are we gonna watch next week? I didn't give it a score. Oh, sorry. So what? I'm gonna say three on mm. that front. Three choppers. Three choppers uh, out of five. What, what are we gonna we... watch next week? I thought we might have a little gift for Jeb and I don't know what it's called. I saw a film on Netflix a while ago and I and I thought, oh that's a dystopia I should commit it to memory. And it had Justin Timberlake
2: Oh, I know what this one and is. And it's also
3: got Vincent Carthesa in it, and it's about time, yeah. and it's about stopping time. Yeah. And I don't know what it's called, but that's what we're going to watch. I know
2: exactly what you mean, though. Well, yeah. exciting. Yeah. Know, I'm, I'm so glad you put Justin Timberlake. That's for Jen. I thought that that's, that's Jen's era. Do you know what? That is, that's probably the kind of dystopia I
1: can handle. There we go. I thought you were going to say, do you know what? That's probably the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Uh... <laughs>
0: Standard issue for all women.